The afternoon of August 1st, 1966 was one of particular infamy. Shooter took aim at any and all who were walking near the University of Texas campus. Took over two hours for the bloodbath to end. How did such a horrible massacre come to be? Well, listen on to find out. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another installment of Killing, Missing, Hidden, a podcast that's like pizza. You know, even when it's bad, it's still pizza. I'm your wonderful host, Brad, master of all legal matters and current sergeant-at-arms for the Stonecutter Society. As usual, this week we're going to talk about a bad thing. This week's bad thing is the Texas Tower shooter, one Charles Whitman Jr., really was the first major mass shooting in U.S. history, and it's had one heck of an impact on our society, even if the impact isn't glaringly obvious. Quickly, before we strap into this wild ride, go follow our Instagram account. It's lonely. It needs some friends. But, you know, only if you're on that platform. Don't sign up for Instagram just for us. Uh, we're kmh.podcast. Got to have the dot in there. Don't know why. Uh, You know, so hook up with us. Be thoroughly disappointed. All right. Okay. On with the show. Charles Whitman Jr. was born into this world on June 24th, 1941, as the firstborn child of Margaret and Charles Whitman. Daddy Whitman was the paradigm of the American dream. He's pulled himself up from poverty by just his bootstraps. And a lot of hard work, a lot of determination. And he was now a successful plumbing contractor. Because of his strong, committed attitude, he was able to buy a house for his family in one of the nicer neighborhoods over there in Fort Worth, Florida. Struggling from poverty to being well-off dramatically shaped Daddy Whitman's view of life. He had high expectations for all in his family. Margaret had to be the perfect housewife. The house had to be kept nice, dinner had to be served on time, and she always had to be presentable. Neighbors would often comment on what a spectacular job Margaret did as a housewife. While the neighbors would give Margaret an A-plus as a wife, Charles Sr.'s had much, much higher expectations. Margaret was expected to handle the bulk of the child-caring duties, and she loved her kids. Like, she was just a born mama, you know? She delighted in raising not only Charles Jr., but also her two younger boys, Patrick and John. Neighbors also loved the children, particularly Charles. He darted around the neighborhood all day, playing with other kids and interacting with his neighbors. Charles Jr. was known to be very polite and courteous for his age and also demonstrated some pretty good sense, as he was never one to wander far from home. He always stuck close by. Now, despite having this picture-perfect family, Charles Sr. was just never satisfied. Again, he demanded perfection in everything his family did. Mistakes were not tolerated. Mistakes were evidence of weakness or evidence that you were not trying hard enough. This was the attitude that made him the man he was, and by God, he would make his boys just as strong. 
Now, to begin with, Charles blamed Margaret for the boy's mistakes and was particularly aggressive in uh, correcting her. Nothing terribly serious, but it would cause her to delay visiting the grocery store for a few days, you know, until the bruises could heal. With the boys, Charles knew it was unfair to expect perfection from them while they were growing up. But he made it clear that the boys would only earn his respect and love if they were elite at everything they did. This was the only time he offered any affection or praise. Now, of the three, this really only worked on Charles Jr. The other two boys just kept their distance from their father, but Charles Jr. was always right there, square in his father's sights. Because of this, Charles Sr. only took the time to teach Charles Jr. how to hunt, which Charles Sr. viewed as one of the most important activities a man could engage in. Now, because of his commitment to perfection, Charles Sr. refused to cut his oldest any slack when it came to hunting. Charles Jr. had no stomach for killing animals initially, but that eventually stopped being a problem after seeing his father's disappointment and feeling it. As little Charles practiced more and more with his hunting rifle, he got better and better. He would practice shooting squirrels on weekday afternoons, then would stalk deer with his pop on the weekends. Meanwhile, Margaret insisted the boys learn to play a musical instrument. She decided on the piano. Now, Daddy didn't necessarily approve of this activity, but he also didn't object. It was another skill the boys could learn to excel at. And, of course, perfection was required. Charles Sr. went so far to stress this point that he would leave his belt on top of the piano. You know, just to remind the boys what would happen if they missed a note while practicing. Again, Charles Jr. drove himself to be perfect as he wanted his dad to love him. The other two stayed out of the line of fire. Arguably, this level of constant pressure would have broken most children. But little Charles kind of thrived, actually. He wanted to do better. He wanted to be perfect. He wanted his dad's approval. Oh, by the by, all this was occurring when Charles was only five. School didn't really make Charles' life any easier. See, when he started school, they decided to test him. And the school administrators learned that he was extremely gifted. He scored a genius-level IQ for his age. Now, rather than this being a source of pride for his dad, it was just another expectation for his son to live up to. The school was scared that Charles Jr. would get bored by a normal curriculum. So they created the most challenging and toughest one they could think of. So even in his first years of school, here we have little Charles handling huge amounts of homework, daily piano practice, and daily shooting practice. Imagine being six or seven years old and having to jungle hours of homework, piano, and hunting, all while knowing that just one minor mistake, you know, just one missed note, would end up with you getting a belt whoop all up your back and thighs. And again, it really wasn't just mistakes you had to watch out for. You had to be number one at everything you did or you would face daddy's wrath. This was the world Charles Jr. grew up in and was the only thing he knew. By the time he got to high school, Charles Jr. life was kind of crazy. He was a baseball team star pitcher. He was the manager of the football team. 
Now, by the time he had turned 12, Charles had earned the rank of Eagle Scouts in the Boy Scouts. And at the time, that was the youngest anyone had ever earned that achievement. Ever. Like, that's how awesome it was. Charles Jr. then followed this up with the massive accomplishment of earning the Scouts God and Country Award. I'm, I'm not a Boy Scout, so I don't really know, but apparently this is a massive deal. Um, I was only a Cub Scout, and my troop leader was, um, oh, I guess we'd say crazy. Like, she almost got the troop shut down. Uh, because so many parents pulled their kids out once they realized some of the insane stuff we'd be up to. Uh, you know, a couple stories, my favorite being one day our true player decided we were going to go camping without telling our parents, without even giving us the opportunity to get a toothbrush, without tents or any other equipment. Seriously, this was on a, a Thursday afternoon after school and she just marched us out into the woods. When, you know, eight, nine-year-olds start questioning your plan, it's probably not a brilliant one. And she, she responded to this by exploding into rage and took us back to the church where we met and made us all just sit outside in silence until our parents came to pick us up. This was also, there was also this delightful time where we did a uh, charity food drive. We went to go collect canned foods for the local food bank, right? Good thing. Very smart. Good for the community, all that. Well, she tells the parents that we're going to be in these neighborhoods. And after we get dropped off and get going and all that, she just decides to go to different neighborhoods. And while she promised our parents that we'd be back by noon, we didn't really return home until three, and that was under police escort. Um, it, 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 I just remember my dad, uh, yelling at me like it was my fault, but that's the sort of person we were dealing with, but we're here to talk about Charles, right? Not me. So he's doing this awesome stuff, right? And his dad only kind of grudgingly gave his approval. The kid was worshiped in the community for all these amazing accomplishments, but his dad just kind of went, meh, it's good. Is it really your best though? It's like, all right, Pops. He set a record for the youngest Eagle Scout ever, and Daddy isn't impressed. So this dude was clearly just an asshat. He was like the male Karen before Karens were a thing. I assume there's a term for that, but I'm not hip or cool enough to know what it is. Now, on top of all this other mess, Charles Jr. had taken on a paper route because his father was a strong believer in working hard and earning your own living. So every morning, he'd wake up at the crack of dawn to go deliver papers, rain or shine. Now, if it was raining or unusually cold, his mother would get up with him and she would drive him in her car. I'm sure Daddy hated this because, you know, freezing in the rain builds character. But it was also the only time that Charles Jr. and his mom got to spend any alone time together, where they could speak freely without fearing that daddy would be with an earshot, you know? And it was in these car rides that Charles Jr. learned that not every family operates like this. You know, it's not a dictatorship ruled by fear. It's really the only time, too, that his mom could offer unconditional love. 
And the only time she could speak freely about what he needed to prepare himself for in the world in those short car rides. But, you know, eating from this tree of, of good meant little Charles also learned about evil and hatred. So as he grew up, as all boys do, Charles Jr. went through some changes. One of those changes was this increasing feeling of anger he felt inside of his heart. Again, he had learned that his family was different, that he was subject to a different set of rules than everybody else. And that seemed really unfair. You know, he'd see a classmate get a B on a test and his parents would celebrate it. He'd get a 99 on a test and his dad wanted to know where that other point went. He didn't really know how to direct this energy either. You know, that's something a lot of teenagers struggle with. But in Charles' situation, it was arguably worse since he was constantly being monitored and directed and, you know, pushed around by his dad. And so he, the only way he ever figured out to release his anger was through hunting. He took to his practices vigorously. And little Charles became so adept with the rifle that older hunters he would go out with found his skills to be virtually impossible. He would make shots that they said just couldn't be made. And they couldn't believe the speed he could move between targets without sacrificing any of his incredible accuracy. Now, as Charles' anger grew and grew, he kind of felt sicker and sicker. Of course, the Whitman family didn't tolerate illness or complaints thereof. It was a sign of weakness. But eventually, he couldn't hide his pain, and his mother insisted he be taken to the hospital. When he arrived, his appendix was so close to bursting that they just took him straight into surgery. Fortunately, everything went well, there was no complications, and he was fine. Now, remember, this was way back in the day when hospitals would, you know, actually watch after you after surgery. So he stayed there for a few days recovering. And during this time, little Charles had a strange realization. See, the hospital enforced strict visiting hours, so he couldn't be smothered by his father. But frankly, it didn't matter. His dad wasn't going to waste time in a hospital anyway. He had better things to do. So... You know, Charles kind of had a break from his life. There was no ticking clock or sort of Damocles hanging over his head. He really just got to chill and relax for the first time in his life. It was this short break from his unstoppable grind of his life that Charles decided he really needed an escape plan. He couldn't stay with his dad. See, his, his dad had been working his contacts to kind of build... Charles' future. He knew what school he was going to go to. Uh, he knew what he was going to study in college. He knew what job he was going to have when he graduated. All this was planned out. The problem was Charles didn't really have a clue on how you escape the situation. Now, one thing Charles Sr. was, I guess, good at, if we want to use that term, is he showered the people he loved with presents. 
you know, to an outsider, it looked like he was being affectionate and very generous. But in reality, it was just another method to control those under his thumb. So when Charles got out of the hospital, his daddy bought both him and Patrick, the middle brother, motorcycles. Well, Charles loved that thing. He would ride it all the time. It was really the only time he felt free. He could just turn off his brain and he would just push that bike as hard as he could go. He loved the sensation of danger and, you know, passing by trucks or going fast through turns, all that. He loved it. He loved it. And of course, you would expect a teenager to push themselves as hard as they could on a bike, right? This lasted for a few months until Charles had a spill on his bike and kind of destroyed it. And in the process, nearly killed himself. It was chalked up as an accident. But some people have hypothesized that it may have been a suicide attempt because where he crashed was not a particularly dangerous area. And there was no condition that would have created a sudden surprise that would have caused Charles to spin out. So, one, you know, if Charles was looking for a way out of his gilded cage, and from the limited perspective a teenage mind would have, death may have been the only way he saw to truly get free. Now, again, this took him back to the hospital, which he enjoyed. Uh, but he slowly, reco- you know, he eventually recovered from his injuries and went back to his normal life. Uh, as his time in school was coming to an end, you know, he was very popular. Like we mentioned, he was the golden boy of the community. So all the end of the year parties he got invited to, all the parties for all the sporting clubs and academic clubs he was a part of, you know, they had to have Charles there and all that. So. He went to them all and at first just kind of grinned and bared it because he didn't really enjoy the scene until somebody forced a beer into his hand. And then he developed a taste for alcohol. Now, one of these parties, just before he turned 18, he got pretty messed up and came home an hour late. He missed curfew by an hour. He thought he could sneak in, but sitting in the dark outside of the house on the side lawn was his daddy. He had picked that spot because it was the darkest spot around the house, so he knew Charles Jr. couldn't see him when he came up. Now, Charles Sr. saw him staggering. He could smell the alcohol on him. And he thought, you know, my son's getting a little too big for his britches. So if he wants to act like a man, let's punish him like a man. Charles Sr. caught his son off guard with a hard punch to the jaw. And then he just continued to beat his son until the young man could no longer stand. Then daddy kicked the legs out from under him and worked on his ribs and upper body for a while until Charles couldn't even try to get up. He watched him for a few minutes. Charles tried one last time to get up, at which point daddy kicked him as hard as he could in the ribs and Charles tumbled over into their swimming pool. And daddy just went to bed. 
Charles Jr. was beaten, bloodied, probably concussed as he floated to the bottom of the pool. And according to Charles, he would say that there was just darkness around him and he was happy to see it. And he doesn't really remember how, but somehow he got out of that pool. Just his survival instincts kicked in. Got out of his pool, walked to his bed, stripped down out of his wet clothes, left them on the floor, and fell asleep naked on top of his sheets. But he woke up at 6 a.m. to start a new day the next day. And it was at this point he was willing to do anything to get out of this life. And he finally had an idea that he thought could work. He knew his daddy had lots of contacts and could probably undo any damage that Charles Jr. could do to his life. But the one place he could go without his daddy being able to influence his life was the military. So he secretly signed up to join the Marines, and on July 6, 1959, Charles snuck down to the local train station and headed to Paris Island to begin his career in the United States Marine Corps. Now, while most of Charles' fellow recruits really struggled with the adjustment to military life, it didn't bother him at all. If anything, this was a bit of a vacation. To him, you know. Yeah, he had to wake up early, but he always had to wake up early at home. Yeah, he had to exercise hard every day, but he had been doing that for years, too. Sure, he had to keep his bunk and all his gear clean and orderly, but Daddy expected that from him, too. The demand for perfection from the Marines was actually a little bit low the standard that Charles Sr. had set for his son. Because of this, Charles excelled at virtually every aspect of his military training. He always finished in the top percentile of any challenge they were presented with. And oddly, instead of being resented by his fellow recruits, he was actually beloved by them. Because he wasn't the sort to get first place and brag about it. He was the sort that, you know, if they were practicing hand-to-hand fighting, he would actually give tips to whoever he was working with. And if the guy got one over on him, he'd be the first to congratulate him. So he was he was really, you know, kind of the, the I don't know if he was the leader necessarily, but he was the, the golden child again of this community. And it wasn't just his fellow recruits that noticed. Um, his superiors saw that he was excelling at everything he was doing. And so they set him down and talked to him about becoming an officer. Now, he couldn't, of course, jump straight to becoming an officer. He'd have to go get a degree and then go through officer candidacy school. And, you know, there's several hoops they had to jump through, but they strongly believed that he would be an excellent officer. As well as he did at all the physical tests they put before all the recruits, he showed that he also had a heck of a brain in his head. And, you know, they hounded him. They said, look, all you got to do is say yes. We'll take care of everything else. A few weeks of hounding was all it would took. He finally said yes. But he, because the military was paying for it, he got to go to virtually any school he wanted to. 
And that was actually very challenging for him to pick which school he wanted to attend. He really wanted to go to a university in the Pacific Northwest to get as far away from his daddy as he could. But he was worried about leaving his mama alone to deal with that monster by herself. So he considered attending the University of Florida. But he ultimately decided to compromise between the two and settled on the University of Texas. It was far enough away that his daddy couldn't just come get him. Reasonably close that if his mom needed help, he could get to her. So he became a Longhorn and he decided to study mechanical engineering, much to his superior's delight. Now, his fellow recruits were actually really sad to see him go. The drill sergeants were too, and it's 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 cute, I guess. Um, on his last day with in training there, um, the recruits decided to throw a party for him in secret. And of course, the drill sergeants knew what was going on, that there would be alcohol and things like that snuck in, but they they looked the other way. They wanted Charles to have a goodbye party. And, you know, on his part, Charles was really sad to go. He kind of felt like this was the family he always wanted, but he knew he had to take advantage of this unique opportunity. So he goes to Austin, Texas, where the University of Texas is located, and instantly he realizes how little he knew of the world. And he was also in awe at how much freedom college offered him. I mean, he was totally free on how he could use his time, you know, what classes he could take and what extracurricular activities he could sign up for. And he kind of went a little crazy. He signed up for everything he could. He made friends with everybody, as you would expect. He also found several guys who enjoyed hunting and immediately started joining them on hunting trips. One of the extracurriculars Charles signed up for was karate. And of course, he excelled at this discipline. He was so good at it, in fact, that his uh, instructors kind of forced him to partake in local tournaments. And he entered them, and he won them. But despite all these distractions, Charles knew the reason why he was at school. He was driven to earn his degree and ultimately his officer's commission. Then he got betrayed by Cupid, stabbed right in the back. He met Kathleen Lesnar, also known as Kathy, a fellow student who was studying to become a teacher. Charles fell hard for this girl and like proposed to her in a matter of months. Classmates who remembered him said that the classes they shared together, they just stare at each other with puppy dog eyes. It was just sickeningly sweet, you know? When they married, Charles invited his family to the ceremony because he couldn't think of a reason not to invite them. To his dismay, he noticed that his mom really didn't look well. It looked like she had aged a lot since, she, since he had last seen her. Now, Charles Sr. just stayed on the periphery of the festivities and said very few words to his son. And when it was over, in his opinion... Charles Sr. just kind of left quickly. He was one of the first invitees to depart, and it kind of forced a very hasty goodbye between Charles and his mom and his brothers. 
Now, Kathy, his new bride, was exactly the type of person Charles needed in his life. For whatever reason, she just had a knack for being able to read him. But she also respected his inner life. He wasn't very comfortable sharing his feelings, and and she didn't press them. She stood there and comforted him and supported him and did very little to antagonize him. You know, she tried to be the perfect wife. And in turn, he did all he could to be the perfect husband. Like, he would always make sure he was there when she was leaving class so he could walk her to her next class. He would always find time to eat lunch with her. Uh, when she was invited to dinner parties, she would he would always make time to go with her. And he even took on little odd jobs to earn some extra money just to buy her gifts. But unfortunately, by being focused so much on being the perfect husband, his grades started to slip. He was earning A's and B's. Now he was regularly seeing C's and D's on his exams. And this made him dangerously close to losing the military scholarship he had. And if he lost that scholarship, he'd be forced to go right back into active duty. And then he and Kathy would be separated. She'd have to stay in Texas to finish up her education, and he'd have to complete his enlistment term. In Charles' mind, it only taken six months for him to ruin everything. I mean, he totally blamed himself for all of this. And, you know, one of Charles' greatest fears was that Kathy would see that she could do better than him. She would see what a flawed and broken man he was. He he tried his best to hide it, and he thought he did it well. But Kathy knew him well, and he knew it was just a matter of time before she got sick of him. And Charles just, you know, he, he was constantly in awe that somebody as amazing and as beautiful as Kathy would want to be in his life. So in an effort to keep from losing his scholarship, Charles redoubled his academic efforts. He spent all his free time at the library. He stopped walking Kathy to class. He stopped going to lunch with her. He dropped all of his odd jobs. Uh, There were days where the only time Kathy would see him is when she brought dinner to him at the library as he struggled to stay awake. Now, for some reason, which doesn't make sense to me, Despite being in this situation, Charles continued on with all of his extracurricular activities and reportedly never missed a single meeting of any of the teams or clubs he was on. At the end of the summer, though, Charles learned his fate. He failed to meet the minimum GPA requirements to keep his military scholarship, and he received an order directing him to return to active duty immediately. Charles was just crushed, absolutely devastated by this. And he really couldn't hold in his emotions anymore. When he let Kathy know the bad news, he just kind of crumpled and let all the emotional stress he had been holding in out. I mean, he was just vomiting up everything that made him feel so bad. He cried on the bed and Kathy sat there and held him and, you know, did everything a good wife should do. You know, even as he talked about 
sharing his worries about how inadequate a husband he was, what a disappointment and failure he was in life. She was there. And it kind of shocked him. Like he had no idea Kathy would support him when she learned what a failure he was in his eyes. In fact, she promised him that day that she would never leave him. And if she had to wait for him to finish the last two years of his service, she would wait. So Charles returns to the Marines and hates it. He goes from loving the comfort the routine brought him to it just chafing him the wrong way. You know, he had tasted freedom in college and he liked that a whole lot more than the structured life he was having to go back to. He felt like he was really back under his father's thumb. And his superiors noticed he was not the same recruit he had been before he was sent off to college. Now, one night when he was on guard duty with another Marine, they were kind of patrolling around the area in a Jeep. The Marine was driving and uh, badly misjudged a sharp turn, caused the Jeep to flip, and it went down an embankment. Both Charles and his Marine partner were very badly injured, even some descriptions say critically injured. But they were stuck down this this hill from the road and nobody could see them. And so if they didn't receive medical attention, they would likely to die. But who was going to find them there? The pain kept Charles conscious. And again, his just terribly strong survival instincts took over. Eventually, you know, a patrol was sent out to look for Charles and his partner because they hadn't reported in and nobody had seen him. And when they were following the route that the Jeep was supposed to be on, they came to that curve and they found Charles and his partner sitting there on the side of the road, kind of slumped against each other. Charles had not only managed to climb the slope with several broken bones, he carried his companion up there with them. After freeing his companion from being stuck underneath the Jeep. Because of these actions, which were deemed very heroic and above and beyond what was expected of him, he was given all these accolades, including a promotion. But Charles felt that imposter syndrome coming back on him. And he started falling in with a rougher crowd of Marines. They taught him how to gamble, which was an activity that was forbidden on base. And Charles also kind of got into being an ATM for many Marines. He was free to loan them money, which was fine. But what was not fine was the Marine Corps absolutely forbade usury or the charging of interest on borrowed money. But he happily disobeyed that. And that really caused his downfall in the Marines. In November of 1963, Charles got frustrated with one of his peers and took things a little too far. He had lent $30 to a Marine and that Marine just flatly refused to pay him back. And Charles, even though he was, you know, he was pretty much all muscle. You, you would pinch him and hurt your fingers. He was built that way. Um, and he was pretty athletic looking. He wasn't huge. And so when he tried to intimidate this Marine, the guy just laughed at him and made fun of him. Well, that really got Charles' goat. 
And so the next time he visited the Marine and the guy laughed at him, he said, okay, fine. You owe me $45 now and I'll be back to collect very soon. And Charles was true to his word. He caught the Marine down a dark alley. Uh, I mean, it's hard to have an alley on a base, but you know what I mean? That sort of setting. And Charles had with him a handgun that he had snuck on base illegally. He got his $45, but the Marine reported the incident to their commanding officer, and Charles was immediately arrested and court-martialed. When his trial came, he was found guilty of multiple, multiple offenses and was punished by being demoted, having to serve a combination of imprisonment and hard labor for 120 days, and basically ruined his attitude about being a Marine. When he had finished his time doing, you know, in punishment in prison, he was done. He was totally done, and it just happened to coincide with when his enlistment term ran out. So he finished those 120 days in 1964, and he said, sayonara, suckers. Where do you think Charles went after leaving the Marines? Did he go back home to check on mom, see dad, his brothers? Of course not. He rushed back to Austin, Texas as quickly as he could because he was ecstatic to find Kathy. And sure enough, she had waited for him, just like she promised. She had already graduated and had found a full-time job not far from the campus teaching. And they were both so happy that Charles didn't have to worry about the threat of military service. So they kind of enjoyed their company so much more. Now, Charles wanted to return to school to finish his degree, but that proved to be a trickier task than he thought it would be. You know, between Kathy's salary and his savings, they had enough money to rent a cute little house not far from campus. But there was no way he could afford tuition. Even when he took on some extra jobs, it really didn't make a dent in what he would have to pay. So, in desperation, he turned to the one source of cash he knew would be available to him. His father's bank account. And shockingly, Charles Sr. acted delighted to hear from his firstborn and didn't hesitate to wire him the money he needed. He would always be willing to pay, since it would put Charles back under his thumb. I mean, this was a real-life deal with the devil that Charles entered into. And, you know, Charles' issues with confidence began plaguing him again. He felt weak because his wife was the breadwinner. He felt inadequate because he couldn't provide her with the type of life he thought she deserved. And the idea that he was going to school to one day have that better life apparently never entered his mind. You know, Charles seemed to have everything going for him, but he just couldn't seem to find happiness. He couldn't find a smile in all of this. Meanwhile, since he was now, you know, back in the free world, he continued to monitor his family from afar 
Since that phone conversation with his dad had gone surprisingly well, he felt comfortable calling and speaking to his mom. And he, you know, learned some news he didn't really care for. Patrick, his middle brother, had fallen under his dad's spell and was living the life Charles Sr.'s had designed for Charles Jr., but Patrick wasn't being held to the same lofty standards Charles had been. Was that because Daddy just wanted to rub the life he designed for Charles in Charles' face? John, the youngest, had turned into a bit of a hellion. Nothing bad. He wasn't, you know, bouncing between jails. But he certainly was ignoring his father's expectations and didn't really seem to have any sort of plan for life. And, you know, worst of all and saddest of all, it sounds as though Charles' mother was still squarely in daddy's sights and she had just kind of given up. The abuse apparently didn't happen as often, but that's only because she spent every waking moment trying to anticipate Charles Sr.'s needs. In February of 1966, though, things changed and Charles received a phone call from his mother. Now, Charles had been telling her, look, you don't need to live like this. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know. We can set you up with a life here in Austin. All you got to do is say the word. Well, during that February 1996 phone call, she said the word. And so Charles reacted immediately. He skipped classes that day, drove all night from Austin over to Fort Worth, Florida. When he got there, he was very, very smart about how he went to save his mom. You know, experts will tell you that the hardest thing for the victims of domestic abuse to do is leave because that's kind of when everything comes to a head. You know, the abuser knows this is his or her last chance to maintain control. And Charles knew that on some level, too. And so what he did is when he arrived in Fort Worth, he called the police and he explained the situation to him. And he asked if a cop car could just be sent to kind of monitor things. And they agreed to do so. And so after receiving confirmation that the car was just kind of parked on their street, Charles went to his old house, picked up his mom, picked up all her things, and things couldn't have gone smoother because Charles Sr. wasn't there. It was really just, they couldn't have, things couldn't have worked out any better for them. So they, you know, get in the car and just as he flew down to Florida to pick her up, he flew back to Texas to make sure they were as far away from his dad as possible. When they got to Texas, Charles managed to find his mom a small apartment, nothing fancy, but it was her own. And Kathy actually was able to find Charles' mom a job in the cafeteria that of the school that she worked at. Not a glamorous lifestyle at all, but Charles' mom was over the moon. She was elated. This was the first time in decades she had her own life where she could make her own decisions and nobody would question her. And so she just couldn't be happier. It, it, was, it was the best gift she could receive. Now, of course, this decision put Charles' academic career in jeopardy because who was footing the bill for it? Daddy, who Charles had just crossed. 
After this event, Charles' dad wouldn't speak for him for a while. And there was certainly no promise that his tuition would be paid for the next semester. And this, you know, again, caused Charles to just stress and stress and stress and go through all the ways he was inadequate, you know, because and having his mom there actually proved to be more of a burden than he thought because she had never lived on her own before. So she really depended on Charles a lot to help her just do simple things like pay bills and, you know, how to fix things that were broken around her apartment and whatnot. So, you know, now Charles was trying to balance being a good husband, a good student, and a good son. And it was starting to take a toll on him. Then out of nowhere, the phone calls from his dad started. He would call at really odd hours, you know, like 11 a.m. And then he'd follow it up at 7 p.m. And then again at 2 a.m. And he, he, it looks like he picked this pattern so he could be an absolute thorn in Charles' side. And his phone calls were always the same. He played the role of this lovesick old man who missed his wife so much. And just just wanted to talk to his wife. That's all he wanted. Just just to hear her voice again. Fortunately, Charles wasn't stupid enough to fall for that trick, and he never told his daddy where he had moved his mom. Now, again, this just added to his stress, right? He's not sleeping well on top of everything else. So finally, Kathy convinces him to go see the doctor. And so he goes to the campus physician. He talked to the physician and was diagnosed with exhaustion and given dexedrine and amphetamine. So Charles went from being exhausted to being overly energetic with just one pill. Of course, these pills really weren't that great of a solution. In fact, I would argue they made things worse. One of Charles' friends happened to pop pop by one evening just to see what was up, you know, chat for a minute, all that. And he literally bumped into Charles as Charles was walking out of the house with the suitcase. Now the friend spoke to Charles and kind of led him back inside because Charles was just rambling kind of incoherently. And it took a while, but eventually the friend figured out that Charles had decided his life really wasn't going as planned. And so what he was going to do was drive until he ran out of gas and then just live like a bum. Now, fortunately, the friend was able to talk some sense into Charles and help him calm down and kind of corrected his perspective on life. But this is kind of the first true time we can see without really any question that Charles was developing some mental health issues. Charles had just blacked out. He, he didn't know what happened. He was having an argument with Kathy at one moment, and then the next thing he knew, he was looming over her as his father had done to him so many times, and to his mother. He had hit Kathy. It was the one thing he had promised himself he would never do. He had hit the love of his life. 
He was becoming the monster that his father had tried to mold him into. Charles helped Kathy up. You know, he fetched her ice. He sat on his knees apologizing and just begging for her forgiveness. He promised never to do anything so crude again. But during all this, Charles didn't feel anything. He was just completely numb. He didn't really feel any sorrow or regret. He just felt empty. And, you know, to Charles, Kathy was this goddess in his life. He couldn't lose her. He was going to fight himself to save this one ray of sunshine he had left in his world of darkness. So the way Charles decided to cope with things was he would wake up every morning and make a list of rules for himself. He literally did this every morning. And it gave him enough structure that he felt comforted by it. Arguably, he even thrived under the situation, at least for a spell. But this wasn't some cure-all that made everything right again. Whenever he and Kathy would have arguments, all married couples have arguments, of course. But he would just shut down emotionally. And he knew it was his fault. It was always his fault. Everything was his fault. And he had to be better than what he was. And so every time they had some sort of disagreement, he would go back to his typewriter and type out a whole new list of rules about how he was going to improve himself so Kathy would never get angry with him again. He had to beat the demons his father had created. But still, man, he was deeply, deeply bothered by the fact that he had hit Kathy. Even after weeks of reflection, he couldn't say why he had done it. And he obsessed over trying to puzzle this problem out. You know, so many of the challenges and traumas he had faced growing up really were other people's fault. You know, the the brutal beatings he took from his father, his disagreements with fellow Marines, all the stress caused by the obligations in his life. He could blame all that on someone else. But hitting Kathy, that was all him. He had made that decision. He had taken the action. He had broken his own promise. And Charles, you know, continued to obsess over this rulemaking ritual. In fact, it started to get a little bit out of control. Experts would later note that Charles likely suffered from hypergraphia, which is an obsessive need to write. And it looked like that's true. He had this an apparently uncontrollable urge just to write during his free time. It didn't matter what. He just had to be at his typewriter or he had to have a legal pad in his hand while he scribbled away something. Hypergraphia is usually a symptom of certain forms of epilepsy, but it can be triggered in other ways, like from traumatic head injuries or the use of certain drugs like amphetamines. Now, Kathy saw what was happening, that Charles was just always writing. And she thought this was odd, but Charles was a really diligent man. And so she thought this was just him being diligent on keeping up with the bills or his classwork or, or whatever was on his mind at the time. So she really kind of ignored it. And arguably, the hypergraphia kind of improved their relationship. 
It helped him be more willing to share his thoughts and his emotions and his feelings with her. Uh, he reverted back to how they were when they were newlyweds. You know, he was just very attentive and was very careful with Kathy. And she started to feel like, you know, he was getting to a better place mentally and she could trust him more. But secretly, that stress he always carried with them, it was still there. And he wrestled with it every day. Eventually, in March of 66, he had to go back to the campus physician. He just couldn't stand the stress anymore. It was freaking him out. And this time, the doctor prescribed him Valium to help manage his stress. But it came with a catch. He had to meet with the campus psychiatrist. Now, Charles was raised by a very old school father with very old school values and very old school ideas about how a man should behave. Talking about his feelings to a stranger did not fit into his worldview. However, he gave it a shot because A, the doctor ordered him to, and B, his life was in such turmoil he didn't see how this could hurt. Sadly, he didn't get a five-star psychiatrist, let's say. And they didn't communicate very well. The psychiatrist instantly focused on Charles' childhood for good reason. He certainly did not have a normal one. And he attributed everything Charles was going through to his childhood. But Charles, in his mind, he had been through his childhood. He had survived it. He had dealt with it. He didn't have, in his opinion, he didn't have these feelings of stress because of what had happened in his past. The stress he was experiencing was from what he was dealing with today. But the psychiatrist never got there. You know, to the shrink, it was all about childhood. Charles met with the psychiatrist at one time, but that was kind of the end of their relationship. Now, the volume. It helped Charles when he was getting too worked up. And then he had the Dexedrine, which gave him energy when he needed to push through. But neither really helped him with these swirling rivers of stress and anger and violence that would just suddenly flood his body. In fact, you know, the Valium made him feel so detached at times that he would take actions without realizing what he was doing. And then the Dexedrine, he, when he was angry and he took it, he felt like he was just pouring fuel on this raging bonfire inside his belly. And Charles soon reached the conclusion that he was doomed. He was going to be a failure. There was nothing he could do about it. The psychiatrist had kind of been his last hope. He now realized that his rage and his fury would win in life. He often dreamed about killing himself, but he felt like he just couldn't do that. That would destroy Kathy, and it would leave his mom adrift in this totally unfamiliar world. So he had to come up with a different plan. And at the end of the July 1966, he did. He spent some time at the end of the month writing, as usual, 
but this time it was an apology letter. He tried to explain why he was planning to do what he felt like he had to do. He expressed his deep, deep love for Kathy and how he wished that she never saw suffering in life. Then his alarm went off and he realized it was time to pick Kathy up from work that evening. She was working during the summers as a operator for the local telephone company. When he picked her up around 10 o'clock that night, she was exhausted. She was just whooped. And when they got home, she crawled into bed and Charles said he had to take care of one quick errand. She didn't say anything. She just wanted to go to sleep. The errand was Charles had to go see his mom. You know, he knew it was late and he knew he would kind of rip her out of her slumber, but it was something he had to do. When his mom opened the door and let him in, she didn't realize anything was wrong until Charles reached her bedroom and she got a whiff that something was off. When she was talking to him, his eyes kind of looked empty or dead and he wasn't responding to any of her questions. She came over and tried to comfort him, you know, give him a little hug. And Charles responded by hitting her so hard with a punch that he nearly ripped the fingers off of his hand, off of her hand that came up to try to deflect the blow. She, of course, was knocked down and was in shock. And she laid there on the floor gr- trying to grasp her son, her, her pride and joy hitting her while also dealing with this tremendous damage she had just suffered to her hand. And as she struggled to figure out what was going on, she didn't notice, but Charles had pulled out his hunting knife. And he stood over her and slid it deep into her chest, right between her ribs. All of a sudden, she couldn't speak. She couldn't even breathe. The best she could do was kind of gurgle slightly. It made her collapse again back down to the floor as she tried to regain her composure and get some strength to help herself. That's when Charles drew his handgun and ended her suffering with a single shot to her head. Charles carried his mother's body to her bed and left it in a comfortable position for police to find her. He sat down at her coffee table And using a legal pad that he found in her bedroom, he wrote a letter to the police about why he had to kill his mom. He couldn't risk his father sinking his claws back into his mother. And this was the only way he knew to keep that from happening. He then placed the letter under the covers on top of his mom's torso. Then he went to the bathroom and cleaned the blood off his hands. He drove home and he found Kathy sleeping. And though it pained him greatly, so greatly, he drew his hunting knife again and stuck it between the ribs of the woman he loved. Kathy never opened her eyes. Hopefully she never felt the pain. I like to think she died peacefully in her sleep. But after doing that, Charles took a shower and then returned to his typewriter. He wanted to finish that apology letter he had started earlier in the evening. He also made a personal request, asking police to ensure that 
all of his money and other possessions would be donated to some mental health foundation. He then wrote a series of several other letters, mostly to his brothers and to his friends. This actually relieved a lot of the stress he was feeling. And he was glad he he wrote the letters. On one of the envelopes, as a kind of an addendum, on the back he hand wrote that um, he wanted an autopsy to be performed on his body to see if there's anything wrong with his brain. So here we are at 5.30 in the morning on August 1st, 1966, and Charles was prepared to continue. He grabbed his supply box. It was this huge trunk full of the tools he would need for that day. It was actually too big and too heavy for him to move by himself without tremendous difficulty. So he went to a local hardware store that opened early and rented a dolly from him. He arrived on campus right around 11 or right around 10:30 a.m. when he pulled up a security guard asked for his ID and asked what he was up to and he said he was working as a research assistant for one of his professors so the security guard actually allowed him to park closer to his destination than he normally would be allowed he was heading to the tower now the tower at the University of Texas is 307 feet tall And it has an observation deck at the top that if you go out on it, you basically have a 360-degree view of the city of Austin. It's arguably the defining landmark of the campus. 27 stories tall. There's lots of offices contained in it. It also had become kind of a backup storage for the library. And, you know... It's kind of cute in a way. The employees at the time, um, well, the secretaries and the female workers, um, they they would wear roller skates to get around because it was such a big building that made their life significantly easier. There was also a dumbwaiter system built into it. So if certain books were stored on, say, the 15th floor and a professor needed them, Whoever was working on that floor could roller skate him over to the dumbwaiter and have him sent down to the lobby. Now, Charles drug his trunk using his dolly up into the tower, into the lobby, and went to the elevator and pushed the up button. Nothing happened. He had spent so long planning for this day, but he had never considered that the elevator would be out of order. And there was just no way he could carry this trunk 27 floors upstairs. And so he started to panic when all of a sudden a woman cut in front of him and flipped a hidden switch that turned the elevator on. Charles thanked the woman for her help, cryptically telling her, quote, you don't know how happy this makes me. He rode the elevator to the top and was greeted by another secretary. Now, she assumed he was there to work on something that had broken because he was dressed in coveralls and he had this giant box of tools and other supplies. And, you know, it's not like they ever told her when somebody was coming up to fix things anyway, so this wasn't anything new. She was a friendly sort, of course, so she came up to Charles to introduce herself. But when she got close, she saw he was holding some pipe thing with a wooden handle 
And as she tried to talk to Charles, he turned around and instantly butted her in the face with his weapon. It He hit her so hard that she slowly died from a brain injury. She had no, it was just instantaneous. The, the injury, um, there was no hope in saving her, but she did take several minutes to finally officially die. In that time, Charles took her body and drug it behind a couch or a sofa that was set up there. Now that the violence had officially started, Charles kind of became a machine. He was quickly moving from objective to objective to prepare for his assault. Then he froze. He heard doors opening. And he turned around and looked, and a couple was walking off the observation deck back into the top floor there. Now Charles just froze, and he was still holding his rifle. And there was tension in the room until he finally smiled and said, you know, how y'all doing? And the couple smiled back and headed towards the elevators and the the husband would later say, you know, I saw the rifle, but I thought he was probably up there just to take some shots at pigeons that would torment everybody by pooping on their cars, you know, so I, I didn't think much of it. Which, in today's world, is it's kind of hard to believe that attitude, isn't it? I mean, if we saw a man with a rifle anywhere outside of, say, a gun range or a military base, we'd probably panic and call the police instantly. But here, people are justifying why Charles is carrying around a rifle. Charles was very prepared for his day. He, in his little toolbox, little being, you know, something he couldn't carry, he had a Remington 700 hunting rifle with a four-time scope, a six-millimeter Remington rifle, an M1 carbine, a 357 Magnum, an old Luger pistol, and a sawed-off shotgun, and plenty of ammunition. He also had other supplies, several gallons of water, flashlights, extension cords, duct tape, basically all sorts of necessities he thought he would need because he planned on being in that tower for a long, long time. He started setting up a barricade because the only way to the observation deck was up a small flight of stairs next to the elevator. And so he was moving desks and other furniture to block that off so police wouldn't be able to get in to his nest there. But as he was building this barricade, he was surprised again. He heard the elevator ding, and he heard what sounded like a group of people get off the elevator. There was nowhere else to go once he got off the elevator. The only place you could go was up those stairs to his little nest. This time he knew a polite greeting wouldn't work, so he prepared himself. Getting off the elevator was a family and a couple that was the family's friends. The husband and wife brought with them their two boys, one that was in the Air, United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, other that was a either junior or senior in high school. The Air Force son walked up the stairs first with his little brother by his side. 
And when they got to the top, they saw this barricade. And they decided to start, you know, moving the stuff so their dad and mom could get through. And as soon as they started moving the stuff, Charles appeared around the corner with his shotgun and fired two shells at him. The older son was killed instantly. The younger son was mortally wounded, but had fallen and gotten stuck in the barricade itself. Charles then fired again, and once again from both barrels, hitting both the wives. The two husbands were at the back, and they kind of instinctively dove out of the way for cover. One of the the husband that had just seen his kids shot wanted to scramble back up the stairs, but the other husband held on to him and said, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. You're going to die. And they retreated down um, a stairway that faced the elevator to a floor to the 26th floor, I guess. And it was there that they tried to find an office where they could phone the police. Charles, meanwhile, had gathered his stuff up, set it just how he wanted it, and walked out to the balcony. He decided to unleash the brunt of his assault. His first shot was one that people would later say was virtually impossible to make. He targeted and struck a pregnant pregnant woman. Not the woman, but the baby in her womb. He got a headshot on the baby in this mother's womb. The bullet lodged into the child's skull. He chose the most innocent of victims to commence his wave of terror. Of course, the woman falls over and is screaming in pain. A student who is passing by tries to help her when Charles shot him square in the chest. Next was a professor, a rather famous professor, in fact, someone who had been working with the government and was actually due to go lecture at Oxford University in London, hit him square in the spine. There was a student who was talking to the professor who tried to aid him and dropped to his knees to help, you know, stop the blood loss coming from the professor the instant before Charles Bullet would have killed him. Instead, he got hit in the hit in the uh, shoulder and played dead. Very smart on that kid's behalf. Another student who was randomly selected was shot in the wrist. And this was apparently intentionally done because the student was in an open part of this field. I think they called it the West Mall or the South Mall. I didn't write that down because... I'm a terrible podcast host, but this kid was hit in the wrist. And when people tried to come help him, Charles would take them down. Eventually, through the efforts of several students, the injured boy was moved close enough to a side street that the manager of a jewelry store, along with a couple other men, rushed out and grabbed him and drug him inside the jewelry store. And Buddy Charles just unleashed on that place. All the glass from the windows were shot out. They said it looked like demon's claws were tearing through the carpet as they sat there. Anytime they moved or squirmed or readjusted in any way, 
that would show Charles any flesh, he would hit him. And so these poor men, they were shot in the foot, in the shoulder, the hands, the knees. They weren't killed, fortunately. And it really, really frustrated Charles because he wanted this to be very clean kills. He wanted just lethal shots so people could see how perfect his shooting ability was. So he, you know, did what his daddy taught him. He took a step back, raised his rifle, took in a deep breath, and then lowered it again. His next target was a young man who found out he had just been accepted to the Peace Corps. And he was rushing to a local diner to celebrate with his friends when he felt an odd pressure in his chest. When he looked down, he saw a massive hole with blood just pouring out. Two women heard the shots and, not knowing where the bullets were coming from, ducked into the lobby of the tower. The security guard who was working there told him they were overreacting. If, even if there was a shooting, it was over by now. Everybody in Texas carried guns with them. Nothing would last this long. He kind of shooed him out of the tower and told him to go on their way, which doesn't make any sense. And as soon as they came into view, Charles got him. Actually, he took him down both with one bullet. He, heard, he hit the first woman in the hip. The bullet bounced off of the joint and struck the other woman in the thigh. Not mortal wounds, but they were incapacitated. And again, another set of people who needed aid in an open area that would draw people that he could just mow down as he saw fit. He then moved to another portion of the tower where he could see a side street quite clearly. His first target was a high school student who was riding his bike. His shot hit the seat of the bike and bounced up into the boy's groin and was instantly a mortal wound. Sadly, it took a while for the boy to die. A woman stopped to help the boy. Charles hit her square in the lungs. A man ran over. He got hit in the back of the neck, square in the spine. He laid there paralyzed, something for about 30 minutes before the pressure that was building up in his spinal column finally killed him. Charles had managed to take all of these shots and kill all of these people in less than five minutes. People were still trying to figure out what was happening, where the bullets were coming from. Panic just engulfed the area. Police had received dozens of phone calls at this point, but they were still just trying to figure out exactly where this was going down. Meanwhile, the shooting continued. One student was running back to a classroom to retrieve a book he had left when he was sitting aside. That bullet bounced all through his torso and ripped his organs apart. A newlywed couple saw the man collapse and rushed to help him when they too became victims. The woman was shot in the hip, the husband in the back of the head. Another couple was walking towards the scene down that side street when they ran into a friend who was frantically telling them to run for safety. Somebody was shooting out of the tower. The husband didn't believe her. And wanting to calm down the friend, tried to drag her towards the tower to show her that nothing was happening. But she... (laughs) 
with the strength that only an enraged mama bear can have, pulled both of her friends down into a secure position to protect them. But the man refused to stay there. And wanting, again, to calm her down, he poked his head out. And the bullet went through his mouth and out the back of his head. Of course, his wife instantly jumps up, trying to rush to help them. The friend tries to grab her, but she wasn't quick enough. The bullet went through the friend's hand and into the wife's heart. Police arrived on the scene quickly, despite what it sounds like, and established a 500-foot perimeter to keep people out of harm's way because they knew there was no way anyone could hit somebody with any degree of accuracy from that distance. When the barricade was set up, this crotchety old electrician got out of his work truck to protest the blockade, but the police said, you gotta, you gotta wait. We can't, nobody's going forward. You're safe back here. You're not safe if you go forward. So he walked back to his van, lit a cigarette and kind of leaned against it. When all of a sudden he was struck in the sternum by a bullet. Another man in the alleged safe zone decided to buy a newspaper as he waited and then suddenly realized he couldn't breathe. A bullet had pierced his chest, destroying his lungs. A woman tried to help him. She was rewarded with a shot to the chest. Fortunately, that bullet hit a rib and bounced off, leaving only a flesh wound. Another man was hit in the shoulder. As he held his wound behind cover, he commented to a local reporter who was hiding there that the guy in the tower must be an amazing shot. Another newly engaged couple were walking down the street behind the barricade when they too were struck in rapid succession. A woman ran up and tried to give them aid, but she was hit in the shoulder and incapacitated. One of the first officers to arrive on the scene that was willing to go past the barricade quickly figured out where the killing field was. And he sneakily worked his way behind some decorative stonework that was at the opposite end of this field. And he knew he was out of the shooter's range. There was just no way any standard hunting rifle could reach this officer. And so he tried to help by radioing in some um, information about where the shooter was, where he was aiming, things like that. And he poked his head between two columns that you could just barely see through. He ended up with a bullet hole in his brain. As awful as this scene was, and as terrible as it would make you think humans are, it also gave humanity a chance to show its greatness. There were dozens of people who selflessly risked their lives to save total strangers. Some unsuccessfully that we've heard of, but two paramedics very smartly commandeered an armored security van and drove through all this carnage to pick up those people who had been hit or killed and load up the van, take them to a hospital, which wasn't far away, dump them off and then go right back into the carnage. 
there was a funeral director nearby who actually had his own ambulance. He too, he focused on that side street, making runs up and down the side street, picking up the wounded only, those who could be saved. And then he would take them to the hospital and repeat. And he did this multiple times before finally Charles managed to hit him with a shot through the door to the ambulance, striking the dude's leg and ending his heroics. And what's sad is he managed to stop the ambulance behind cover and he fell out of the ambulance and looked for someone to help him. And for 45 minutes, he sat there with no one brave enough to come save him after he had saved so many lives. Fortunately, he lived to tell his story. Now, those that weren't willing to do the rescue thing helped in their own way. After 15 minutes of Charles's uninterrupted shooting, a good old Texas posse formed. A bunch of random civilians materialized with their hunting rifles, and they started returning fire. Now, they had no chance of hitting Charles. They didn't have his skill. But the barrage of bullets was enough that Charles couldn't just stand there and shoot anymore. He had to take cover. So while the crowd of angry and armed civilians distracted Charles, the police force said, this is our chance. They got their best sharpshooter and put him in a plane. And the plane went high overhead and circled around and slowly descended until the sharpshooter could have a clean shot on Charles. Well, right as the sharpshooter got that clean shot and was about to fire, Charles popped up and in an instant fired three shots, all three of which hit the plane, one of which came inches away from puncturing the fuel tank. Now, this scared the pilot so badly, he pulled back and refused to get any closer. The police sharpshooter never even fired a single round. And through all this, as you can tell, Charles never panicked. He knew the civilian population would slowly run out of ammo. And then he could get back up and continue his work. He just had to be patient, which he was. Again, he had planned on this siege lasting for days. And in the meantime, to keep the police from getting too cocky, he was still able to fire little pot shots through the gutter system. It had openings in the floor of the observation deck, and he could see down in very limited areas, but he had enough openings that he could still keep people in panic and keep the police from doing some sort of gung-ho charge. But the civilian shooting at Charles gave enough break in the action that police were able to catch their breath and they were able to start planning a counterattack. But the police had kind of fractured you had a group that was mainly on traffic duty, right? Manning that barricade, keeping people from going past, directing traffic around it, things like that. Other little isolated groups of officers had started kind of surrounding the area. Well, they weren't communicating with each other very well. And each little group had their own plan. 
most of which didn't work very well, but two groups came up with the best approach. One, which consisted of Houston McCoy, Dub Cowan, and Jerry Day, were smart enough to talk to the maintenance personnel at the university, and they learned that there was a series of tunnels that ran underneath. And these tunnels basically connected every building on campus to every other building, including the tower. So the maintenance workers were able to show those three officers how to access the sewers from a safe position and then drew them kind of a rough map of the turns they'd need to take to get inside the tower. So they followed the map and worked their way till they got to the ladder that led up to the basement of the tower. Now, remember, at this point, all they know is there's an active shooter inside this huge building. He was last seen at the top of the building, but there's no guarantee he was going to stay there. In fact, for all they knew, he could be running for his life. He could know about the sewer system and could be counting on that as his way to escape. So when they get to the ladder, these three men are scared, but McCoy decides he'll be the one to go up first, climbs up the ladder, moves the heavy metal grate, jumps up, and his buddies are waiting for him below, and the seconds seem like hours while they wait to see if McCoy was safe or if they were going to see Charles looking down on him with the gun. Fortunately, McCoy popped his head back over and waved him up. Now, when they got to the top, they were kind of surprised that they were the only ones there. But the surprise didn't last long, and they probably pooped their pants a little when someone just started banging on the front door to the tower as hard as he could. It was another officer, Ray Martinez. They let him in, and Martinez had taken a stupider but just a successful approach. He just zigzagged through all the carnage and just got lucky they was never hit. So they had a four-man team to take down this one shooter. And they were scared, as they ought to be. I mean, imagine being in that scenario. You've got a 27-story building. You've got to clear out to take care of this man that's killing men, women, and children left and right. Right as they were about to go up the tower, the front door opened again, and a civilian just came waltzing in like nothing was up. His name was Alan Crum. And he said, you know, hey, I'm here to help out. And, of course, the police officers were kind of freaked out because they couldn't put a civilian in danger like this. But by the same token, this dude had some courage. <laughs> I mean, he just walked on up and said, I want to take care, take care of this guy that's taking care of everybody else. Plus, how dangerous would it be to tell him, no, you got to go back out there, right? So they kind of debated amongst themselves and quickly decided, yeah, we could use another set of eyes. And so they... um one of the officers there was actually a sheriff's deputy and he quick, he deputized crumb just to make sure that everything would be legal when they went up smart move. So they figured five versus one was as good as the odds as we're going to get. And they started making their way up to the 27th floor. Now I, it's unclear to me exactly how they got to the 27th floor. 
I don't think they took the elevator all the way up there because they were scared that Ding would set off or would alert Charles that they were there. So they either took the stairs the entire way or what I think is more likely, though I can't point to a source for this, is they took the elevator to the 25th or 26th floor, got off, and then walked up the stairs the rest of the way. I just think they'd be too exhausted taking all those stairs to really be able to handle the situation at you know their peak capacity. When they got to the 27th floor, finally, they carefully and quietly searched the area. So you remember those two husbands who survived the initial assault? They were found hiding on the 26th floor in an office. They, you know, the officers found them, said, hey, go downstairs, get out of here. Um, we got this. And so they, they rushed down the stairs. When they were heading up the stairs to the actual observation floor and deck, they heard this really odd noise. It would sound like a man who was running out of breath. And so they all drew their weapons and prepared for the worst. But when they got to near the top of the stairs, they saw where that breathing was coming from. And it was from that youngest son who had gotten tied up in the barricade after being shot. He was barely clinging to consciousness and probably barely clinging to life at this point. But Dub Cowan had some medical training. And so he, with the other officers, you know, pulled the boy off the barricade, took him down um, to in front of the elevator in that little landing and, and uh, started to help him. The two wives that had been shot, they had kind of crawled down there. And so Cowan was instantly the medic that was trying to keep everybody alive. Now, the boy did tell him that Charles was outside and hadn't come back in. So they felt good that they had at least some idea of where they were safe and where they weren't. Now, Martinez had his radio with him, and he radioed to his commanding officer, you know, saying that where they were, they had a rough idea where Charles was, but they wanted them to, they wanted the outside observers to be able to confirm that for him. And they soon learned that Charles was on the North side of the building. So they decided what they would do is Alan Crum, the civilian that had been deputized, they'd leave him at the barricade. And his job was to make sure Charles did not come back into that room. There are only two doors, from what I understand, into that room. You could see them both from the barricade. His job was to watch them. The other three men were going to try to execute a pincher maneuver. So Martinez and McCoy were going to go out the doors and to the left, I believe it was. Jerry Day was supposed to go out the doors and go to the right. But in the chaos of everything happening, because remember, Charles is still shooting. Those civilians are still shooting back. You've got people bleeding out right behind you. It's a scary scene. So Day didn't catch the instructions, and he was confused when Martinez and McCoy ran off. So... Crum, the civilian, said, you stay here. You watch this barricade. Don't let anybody come in those doors. And he took over 
McCoy's assignment. I'm sorry, not McCoy. Day's assignment. So you have two police officers going left and you have a civilian going right. Now, they all crept up to the corner of the area where Charles was supposed to be. And they froze there because they knew they were dealing with a man who was an unbelievable shot with a gun and who had no hesitancy to kill anyone. You know, just one mistake would ruin their assault. And this assault was probably their best chance at stopping Charles before things got really, really bad. Now, of the three of them, guess who had the courage shack first? Our buddy Crumb, the civilian who just waltzed into the building in the midst of all the panic. He started to go forward, but as he did, he dropped his rifle. And when he dropped his rifle, it fired a shot harmlessly into the ground, but it ruined the element of surprise. So Charles knew people were up there now. Fortunately, what Charles didn't know is there was two different groups of people. So Charles turned and faced the corner where Crumb had dropped his weapon. McCoy and Martinez realized if they're going to act, they have to do it now. Martinez jumped out first and with a service revolver, fired six shots at Charles. And five of them missed. The sixth one hit him in the arm, essentially just leaving a flesh wound. Charles turned quickly and instantly sighted on Martinez when McCoy jumped out of hiding with his shotgun and fired two slugs straight into Charles' face. Charles was knocked down and was just a wreck of a person. I mean, obviously, you can't take two shotgun shells at point-blank range and be okay. But something wild happened. Charles was still alive. And he still had that need to kill. To the horror of these two men, Charles, who's almost in pieces, slowed down his breathing and started bringing his gun down on McCoy. He did it slowly and he did it kind of spastically, but it was very clear he was going to kill him if he could. He was not done with this fight. McCoy kind of froze in disbelief. You know, it was like seeing a zombie coming out of the ground. Fortunately, Martinez held on to his senses. He ripped the shotgun out of McCoy's hand, took two steps closer to Charles and fired a third time, again in the face. And this time, Charles stopped moving. He stopped breathing. He was dead. Martinez, McCoy, and Crumb sighed deeply, began to relax, and started to celebrate when a bullet literally took off some of Martinez's hair. See, the civilians on the ground had no idea that Charles was dead. So they panicked, and Martinez gets on his radio and says, we got him, we got him, stop firing. Well, that was good for the police, but most of the people firing aren't police officers. They're civilians. (laughs) And so... Martinez and McCoy are just on their bellies thinking, what do we do to stop this? Well, Crumb had the right idea. He 
Belly crawled back to Mar- uh, to Charles' box of tools and found in there a wooden pole, and he found in there some towels. So he pulled out a white towel, tied it to the pole, and waved it over the edge of the railing to where most of the civilians were, you know, indicating surrender. And the people on the ground, the civilians cheered. All the shooting stopped. Took two hours. Charles's nightmare lasted for over two hours. Eighteen people lost their lives that day. There's another 31 that were wounded. Now, these numbers are somewhat disputed. Some of the victims died well after the shooting. One dude in particular lived for a couple decades before finally succumbing to his injuries. So those numbers are in the ballpark, but it's a little bit on your philosophy on how you count. And some of those that are counted as wounded, it's a little packed because it includes people who, you know, had shards of glass cut them or fell and, you know, broke their wrist or something like that. But in fairness, if it wasn't for Charles, none of these people would have been wounded. None of these people would have died. So I think making it the count as big as possible is not unfair at all. A police chief from a small town in Louisiana made the most insightful observation of this event while it was unfolding. He was quoted by a local reporter as saying that the situation was far more dangerous than anyone realized because, quote, people are going to know this is possible now. I mean, indeed, scholars today claim this mass shooting has served as kind of the original playbook for those who want their 15 minutes of bloody fame. The local media had television cameras trained on the event as it unfolded, and an aspiring shooter just needed to watch the tape to get an idea on how to carry out a horrible attack like this. And of course, that prediction made by the small-town police chief turned out to be true, with Columbine, Sandy Hook, and the Virginia Tech shooters all allegedly giving at least some credit or recognition to Charles in helping plan their own massacres. Stephen Paddock, who killed 58 people while shooting from the 32nd floor of a Las Vegas hotel in 2017, apparently followed Charles's playbook to a T, people learned after the fact. One positive result, arguably, from this incident was the normalization of SWAT teams throughout the United States. These highly trained police officers are now the ones that are sent in to rapidly respond to an active shooter situation and help end it quickly. Now, interestingly, Charles' desire for an autopsy were honored. Of course, he suffered massive, massive damage being shot three times with a shotgun, you know. And with the bulk of the shooting going to his face and chest area, it was kind of a mess. But doctors were able to find a tumor. And this tumor was pressing against his, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this, so I apologize, his amygdala, which is the part of the brain that controls the fight or flight reflex. And research indicates that when this portion of the brain is stimulated by electrical shocks, the subject often flies into a rage 
And this rage can last for hours. And even more interesting, a lot of known pedophiles have found to have a tumor growing in the exact same spot Charles had his in. So apparently, first of all, it shows how little we understand about the brain even today. But apparently this little spot on the brain is can be messed with to cause outbursts of rage or outbursts of uncontrollable deviant sexual desires. There's a lot of scientists who hypothesize that this part of the brain has, you know, the biggest influence of our impulse control. The tumor was likely caused by some sort of massive head trauma Charles had experienced. Maybe from his dad's beatings. Maybe from the accident with the Jeep while he was in the Marines. Who knows? Um, I think it's worth noting, too, and this is my opinion, that you know we can't blame anyone for the shooting but Charles himself. Yes, he's got mental health issues. Yes, he's got this tumor that may have affected how he processed things. But look at how this crime unfolded, okay? This was not some incident of passion, okay? Charles meticulously planned this event. I mean, this started with him coldly and calculating murdering his own mother. His first two killings show no signs that he had a lack of impulse control. He chose to kill his mom. He chose to kill his wife. He then packed up a toolbox with equipment. He rented a dolly. He picked the perfect spot to do this mass shooting from, and he had planned for the shooting to last for days. He fired at civilians and police alike for hours. This was nobody's fault but Charles. He's not the victim here. (laughs) I've seen a few articles that kind of paint him in the light of, well, this is what happens when you have, you know, mental issues that go untreated or what have you. And I agree with that. But you can't use that as an excuse to say that Charles had no control over the situation. He absolutely did. I think the evidence is unrefuted that this was 100% a situation he controlled. I also think there's something very dishonest about Charles. He seemed to put up this front that he was the golden boy, right? And this was no doubt something he learned to avoid disappointing his father. But in no way was it true. His life was just a series of bad decisions that he made. When he was first at the University of Texas on the Marine Corps' time, what did he do? He joined a bunch of clubs and sports and spent a ton of time on extracurricular activities. He then got married and spent all his free time with his wife. And he he did all this even when he knew he was in danger of failing. But did he ever miss a single extracurricular meeting? Nope. Did he ever study instead of going to a karate lesson? Nope. He had an image he wanted to project. Even when he knew it was at stake, and even when he knew how distorted that image was. I would argue that in Charles' life, the most important thing to him 
was looking successful. Now, you can blame that on his daddy. His daddy brought him up in a very bad way and perverted his values, no doubt. But for Charles to sit there and wallow in this idea that he was an imposter and he couldn't control all this stress and he didn't know what to do when he's the one that made the choices that put him in that situation and he's the one that still could make choices to get him out of that situation, you know, stop going to these stinking extracurricular activities and get in the library and study. But he chose not to do that. For what it's worth, if you're interested, Charles Sr., he claimed his son was deranged. He was never abused as a child. He said, yeah, I was a really stern father, but I'm not accepting responsibility for what my son did. Those were his choices. And I don't disagree with them. I don't like the man. I think he bears a little bit of responsibility for how Charles viewed the world. But Charles made these choices. Charles was the one out there on the balcony shooting folks, not his daddy. Daddy never told him to. Now, if you're interested, in my show notes, there's a link to the Texas Archive website. And they have about 18 minutes of actual footage from reporters on the scene of the shooting. Most of it's fine. A little bit of it's graphic. Um, But even through a black and white camera lens, it's awfully scary some of these shots they get of Charles. I mean, he stands up over the railing, pulls his gun, and then there's a puff of smoke and he disappears. I mean, it's scary how good he was at this. Now, even though I just kind of said the opposite of this, this does kind of highlight how important mental health is, why we need more resources available for folks who are struggling. Um, I mean, arguably Charles sought help by going to the psychiatrist once. And it's apparently, it's been reported that when he talked to that psychiatrist, He said he felt like the only way he could feel at peace with the world is if he went into the tower and shot people. And the psychiatrist didn't feel the need to report this to anyone. So again, I don't think they had the best of the best working as the campus psychiatrist. Now, this is one of the more important events in recent United States history. And personally... I knew very, very little about it before researching this episode, and I suspect I'm not the only one. And that's part of the reason why, once I learned about more about the details, that I really wanted to do this episode and really go in depth on it. Uh, I mean, you have Charles going from the pride of his community to one of the greatest monsters in history. And, you know, unfortunately, this is another episode that got away from me a little bit, but I just really felt like we needed to get as much information as possible on this episode. And yeah, it ends up being long. And yeah, you're probably going to have to listen to it in bits and pieces, but I felt it was important because it's such an underappreciated event in history. I mean, you could make the argument that Charles is the reason why 
we've had so many mass shootings. So, all right, let's get some a little happier. Our palate cleanser. Here's what Eli has to serve up this week. Nothing. Can you believe this kid who I feed and clothe and buy toys for and video games for couldn't take time out of his busy schedule for us to have a joke this week? It's just infuriating, isn't it? I, I don't know why I have kids. They, they do nothing for me. Maybe I should be more like Charles Sr., right? No, I can't do that. I love my kids too much. <laughs> Excuse me. So here is a joke I was able to find. And I'm sorry, but you get nothing with from Eli. At least you get something from me. All right, here we go. And again, I apologize. Did you hear that the world tongue twister champion just got arrested? I hear that they're looking to give him a really tough sentence. Huh? Huh? Tongue twister? Tough sentence? Right? Uh, all right. And with that sad little fart, that'll be the episode. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate all the folks who take the time out of their day to let us fill up your ears. Hopefully you enjoyed this ear hole filling. We also deeply love you. At least those of you who get, you know, your ear holes filled and then share it with your friends. So go do that. Then you can feel deep love. Also, I want to give a special shout out to everybody who's been leaving us reviews lately. I don't know what spurred this on, but we appreciate it. We love it. It's so flattering. My ego is getting out of control. I'm sure if my wife were here, she would say, all right, guys, you got to calm them down a little bit. But no, keep them coming. Five star after five star. It's wonderful. But serious, thank you. Thank you for that. So we would love it if you haven't left us a review, if you would leave us one. Unless you're going to leave us a one-star review, that's, no, nobody needs that negativity in their life. So just don't even bother. You're free to listen to other podcasts. I don't know why you would want to, but, you know, people make bad decisions all the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this podcast, right? Okay, so until we meet again, never forget all the times I stayed up with you as a child when you had a cold or you were scared, or how my motherly embrace made things all the better. So be good, do good, take a shower so you smell good. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.